Well, thank you. You can be seated if you're here in the room with me. And uh, if you're at home and you were standing, you're also welcome to have a seat. Although, who am I to tell you what to do in your own house? Um, my name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff at Fullerton Free. And uh, I want to say welcome to all of you, whether you're here in the room or whether you're joining us online, uh, whether you're at home locally or at home around the world. We're, we're really just pleased that you've joined us uh, to worship God together as a family. And we're thankful for the technology that allows us to do that even remotely during this crazy season. Uh, I want to say this, if you're, if you're a child or a young person who's at home and, uh, and you're unaware, or maybe you're aware, every week as we've been studying the book of Daniel or whatever we're studying, uh, we always prepare what's called a Kids Connection video. And uh, there is one of those online. You can find it on the Fullerton Free app. You find it on our E! News email. There, you find it on our website. It's, there, it's easy to get. But young people, if you're watching now, kids, uh, now's a great time for you to find a space and, uh, and play that Kids Connect video. You'll be studying the same chapter uh, that your families will be studying. And then we'll come back together to worship God more through song later on. But I wanted you to know that there. There are also coloring sheets and other resources for families and children. Uh, We just don't want you to miss that. So if you're at home, you can tune into that now. We are finishing up our study in the book of Daniel. We've been in a a six-week series called Citizens of Distinction, and we've been looking at the narrative portions of Daniel. I'll remind you that even though we're done with our study in Daniel after this morning in our main services, we are starting a brand new teaching series called Beyond that will happen on Sunday afternoons, and it'll sort of happen intermittently, but that actually begins today at three o'clock, and we'll be going through the uh, prophetic and apocalyptic sections of the book of Daniel, which is the last half. So if you're going, man, I want to know more about that, you can jump in on those Beyond sessions either in person by signing up or you can jump in uh, via you know watching it later via recording but so that's coming and we'll be doing beyond sessions for different things over time it's just one more way for us to be in God's word together uh, as we sort of look uh, my my sort of overarching goal I feel really uh, compelled in this time I've been spending a lot of time in prayer and I feel like it would be a great and achievable goal if we as a church family over the next 20 years would do our best to study every page and every chapter and every verse in God's word. So that's what we're endeavoring to do over the next 20 years, God willing. Uh, we're going to work our way through the entirety of the Bible in different sections. So one of the ways we accomplish that with only 52 Sundays a year is by having a couple of other teaching sessions in other places where we can cover some of the other things. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let's look at Daniel chapter six. Now, um, as we've worked our way through Daniel, we've seen Daniel and his friends uh, do a variety of things and model what it looks like to be citizens of distinction in a variety of different circumstances. When we were in Daniel chapter 1, we saw that Daniel and his friends had to make a decision about what to say yes to and what to say no to. Uh, there were a lot of things that they went along with. They had to make a decision about whether they were going to fight the new culture, the culture of uh, their enslavement, or whether they were going to just sort of blend in with that culture, or wa- rather, as we looked at in that first week, whether they were going to find a way by the power of God to see that culture transform, which requires neither a strong resistance to all things, nor an accommodation of all things, but a wisdom and discernment down the middle to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. We came to Daniel 2, and we saw in the interpretation of the dream there that Daniel was very good to sort of point away from himself, that God was giving him favor, God was allowing him to speak and to have influence, but he didn't use that influence for his own personal gain, but he pointed away from himself. When we got to Daniel chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar build this huge statue. And, uh, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were forced to take a stand. That was one of those times where they had to say no. And they had to look at Nebuchadnezzar and say, Look, our God is able to deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow to your statue. Because there is a God in heaven, and you're not him, right? So we see their discernment in that, being able to take a stand at the right time in the right way. 
As we get to Daniel chapter 4, we see Daniel uh, unfortunately having to declare difficult news. And in that week, we talked about the fact that as followers of Christ, there are times where our prophetic engagement has to do with declaring things to other people that are difficult for them to hear and difficult for us to declare. And yet at the same time, there's a way to do that with affection. There's a way to do that with love and compassion. And then last week, as we were in Daniel chapter 5, we see, uh, once again, we see Daniel sort of working um, to, uh, I want to make sure I don't, I don't mess this up here. He reminds the king of what he should have already known. Remember, by that time, we jumped to the story of Belshazzar, and there's the writing on the wall. And Daniel comes in and he says, you knew the story of your grandfather. You knew what God had done. You know what he has said. And yet you continue to defy him. And as a result of that, God has, has held you on the scales and found you wanting, right? Your time is done. There's a reminder for us in that section last week that it's important for us to pay attention to what God has already declared to us. And now as we come to the last section of narrative in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, we're going to see once again that Daniel comes under fire. There's some oppression here. It's funny and interesting to me that as believers in the authority of God's word and as followers of Christ, there are just different places where opposition and sometimes oppression and sometimes attack sort of rears its head where you might not even necessarily uh, expect it. I remember one time I was teaching uh, for a, uh, I was teaching for a youth group. It was a junior high group down in South Orange County. This was many years ago. And I'd been invited to come in like on a Wednesday night and just teach the Bible for this outreach thing they were doing. So I came in, there's a group full of junior highers, probably like 250 junior hires in this room. And I start to teach. And as I'm teaching, I know just kind of in my peripheral vision, I notice there's a young man kind of sitting off to the right. And as my eyes sort of pass over the crowd, sort of like I'm doing even now, my eyes pass past this one, one young man. And when I look at him, he does this like that. And I thought, okay, that's a, that's a little weird. You know, it's a little bit weird. The, the sort of traditional sign for, I'm going to cut your throat. So I, I just kept teaching and I thought, well, maybe he wasn't looking at me. Maybe there's somebody in the wings over here. You know, maybe he's looking off, off behind me someplace. So as I'm teaching, I kind of glance, nobody's over there, right? It had to be for me. So I'm like, okay, that's weird. I keep teaching. And about five minutes later, I see the same kid. I look at him again and he goes like this, and I'm like, all right, no, that's definitely scary. Like that's kind of, even from a junior higher, like it's a little unsettling. And, uh, and so I just keep teaching and whatever. And then one more time as I'm teaching, I look over and the same guy again does the throat cutting thing, you know, with his tongue hanging and like this. And I don't know what I did to offend this kid. I don't know if he didn't like what I was teaching, but I felt kind of bothered. So at the end of the night, I get all done. And the youth pastor of this particular church, which I won't, I won't tell you what church it was because you, you're from, be familiar with it. But the youth pastor at this church, he says, how you feel about the night? And I said, well, I feel like I was able to communicate all the things that God asked me to communicate. I feel like, you know, we were able to share the gospel, which was really great. I always love to do that. And I said, but I will tell you, there was one young man who uh, three different times while I was teaching, uh, who, who made kind of threatening gestures at me, which I wasn't expecting. And he goes, you're kidding. He goes, well, do you know which kid it is? And I said, well, let me, let me see if I can see him. And the kids are all playing games and they're all doing other things. So I'm kind of looking around, but I knew what he looked like. And I finally see the kid and he's standing over by a foosball table. And so I, I told the youth pastor, I said, you see the kid in the blue shirt with the black windbreaker? And he goes, with the brown hair right there? And I said, yeah. He goes, that's our pastor's son. And I was like, oh, yeah, all right, all right. PKs, right? Trouble. And I, don't, I still to this day don't know what that threat was all about, but I have told my children not to make uh, threatening gestures at anybody who's teaching, unless it's me, in which case, you know, it's just a family thing. So Daniel here comes under attack uh, from these other satraps and rulers. Let's look at this together. I want to point out a couple of things before we get into the main points I want you to see. 
It says here in the beginning of this chapter, it pleased Darius, and remember, Darius is the king over the Medes and the Persians, who overthrew the kingdom of Belshazzar at the end of Daniel chapter 5. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. So he's one of the top three leaders in the nation, right? In the nation. There's a slave boy who's basically been elevated to a position of significant influence. Not only is he one of the top three, but it says over them, he set three high officials, one of whom was Daniel, to whom these satraps could give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So he's already one of the top three, but Darius the king is looking at the excellent spirit that's in him and he's made a determination like, I actually think he shouldn't be top three. I think this guy should run the kingdom on my behalf, right? This, this exile from Judah should be the one to be making decisions for all the Medes and the Persians. It says in four... Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Now the likelihood is that even if you're not super familiar with the Bible or you haven't been around church for very long, you're probably familiar with the overarching arc of this chapter. Uh, There's a famous story here called Daniel in the lion's den. You might've seen a puppet show. You might've seen a cartoon. You might've seen a coloring sheet at some point, Daniel in the lion's den. We know that ultimately in this text, what will happen is that Daniel is going to get trapped. Uh, We'll talk about that in a second. And because of his violation of a law that was put into place, Daniel ends up being thrown into the lion's den because of his faithfulness there. But God shuts the mouths of the lions, as we heard read earlier as we were reading it together. He shuts the mouth of the lions and Daniel is protected all night long while he's in the lion's den. The lions don't touch him. We know they're ferocious because they actually destroy his accusers just after that. But Daniel is saved from the mouths of the lions. It's a famous story and even as kids, most of us have heard that one way or another. But this morning for our intents and purposes, I think the story of God shutting the lion's mouths is miraculous. It's an incredible story. But I'd love to suggest to you this morning as we look at this text that the greater miracle in the text than even the lion's mouth being shut is the way in which Daniel has endeared himself to this pagan leader. I think even if Daniel had been devoured in in the lion's den, this would still be a chapter about a miracle that occurs, a spectacular occurrence because of the power of God. What we see in this chapter of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, is a predictable faithfulness. And if I had a title for my message this morning, the title of my message this morning would be Predictably Faithful. Daniel and his friends have been on a bit of a roller coaster. There's been all kinds of ups and downs. We were talking this morning, even as we prayed before the service, that Daniel has already served under some four kings, and, and some are, you know historians will argue he may have served under as many as eight kings, and he'll still serve under another, right? So Daniel has seen overthrows, he's seen coups, he's seen you know kingdoms toppled, he's seen the fall of the Babylonian Empire, and Daniel continues to be predictably faithful. I think if there's one thing we would want to look at as followers of Christ this morning, it's, it's how to be predictably faithful no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in. 
through the highs and the lows and the ups and the downs. I don't think any of us could have predicted that 2020 would look the way it does. How do we be predictably faithful? And there are some hallmarks of his predictable faithfulness in here. I don't want you to miss. I've got four points for you this morning, but before I even get to those, let's also remember that in this particular text, Daniel isn't being oppressed because of his faith. That's a subtle distinction, but it's important. Daniel here is not being oppressed because of his faith. He's being oppressed because of his success. And his success is a result of his faith. Does that make sense? So it's kind of, it's kind of a, there's a, there's a bit of an extinction or or like a, an extension here. The satraps and prefects, the other high officials, they're not trying to bring Daniel down because they hate his God. They're not trying to bring Daniel down because they don't like his prayer life. They're not trying to bring Daniel down because they hate his religious practice. This isn't religious oppression in Daniel chapter 6. That's just not what it is. What we see in Daniel chapter 6 is jealousy. Oppression fueled by jealousy. These other leaders and satraps don't want Daniel to have the keys to the kingdom, literally. And so they seek to undermine his authority because they want that authority for themselves. But it's important to note at the same time that the success that Daniel has, he only has because of his faith in God, right? So they aren't completely disconnected either. But this isn't a bunch of people that hate prayer and so they're trying to push Daniel in a corner because they hate prayer. They're pushing Daniel into a corner because they don't want him to take the jobs they think they themselves deserve. I think any time that we're serving Christ faithfully, we will come under attack. There are times where we will come under oppression. We will come under uh, objection and, and there will be reasons to persevere. But it isn't always that those who are attacking us are attacking us because they hate our God or because they hate our religious practice. Some, sometimes they just want what we have. Sometimes they just are, there's jealousy and other things. We have to be discerning. That's the whole point. We have to be discerning in any situation to assess why is this happening? Because it's only when we sort of understand why it's happening that we can figure out how to navigate our way out faithfully, right? Daniel here is predictably faithful. And in the midst of all of this, there are are four key things I want you to see. The, The first thing I want you to see is that Daniel, from the beginning of this story to the end, has manifested what is described here in Daniel 6 as an excellent spirit. If I'm going to if I'm going to pull four takeaways from the predictable faithfulness of Daniel and his friends in the narrative portions of this book, the first thing I want to pull away is this idea of having an excellent spirit, having having a distinct otherness, right? My uh, my grandmother, who my children call Mimi, she lives in Phoenix, she's at a retirement home there, and uh and when you meet her, if you meet her, uh you can tell something's a little bit different about her. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you don't have to talk to her for very long and you go, yeah, so, something's, something's a little strange. There's just an otherness about my grandmother. And the reason is she's from Oklahoma and people from Oklahoma are kind of strange, right? Have you met, you met Okies before? I mean that in a, in a loving, I love my grandmother probably as much or more than I love anybody on the planet. But when you talk to her, there's just kind of like, you can just tell she's not from around here, right? Now that has to do with the little bit of an accent. It has to do with the way she talks. It has to do with the way she sees the world. It has to do with the way she cooks, the things that she calls biscuits that nobody else might call a biscuit. You know, there's, there's all kinds of reasons, but if you spend time with her, you go, huh, I don't think she's from Phoenix, right? She's, there's an otherness about her, but I'll tell you this too. You can't have a conversation with my grandmother that lasts more than about four sentences without hearing about the Lord Jesus. 
You just can't talk to her without hearing about Jesus. She is so hardwired to worship with every thought and word and deed and attitude that when they take her to the hairdresser, guess what? The hairdresser is going to hear the gospel. When they take her to the cafeteria in her retirement village to eat with all the other little old ladies, guess what? Those people are going to hear about Jesus. So when you meet with Mimi... There's an immediate identification, not only that she's not around, she's not from around here geographically, but that she is the citizen of the kingdom of Christ Jesus. And you, can't, you really can't talk to her without that being pervasive. There's a, there's a different spirit about Daniel, it says. We see that right there in verse 3. It's part of why he's been elevated. This Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. Well, I think it's worth us stopping for a second and saying, well, if we're followers of Christ, if we're believers in this same Yahweh, is that excellent spirit on display in us? Is there a distinguishable otherness about us? I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He's saying, hey, have you been transformed by Christ? Have you tasted and experienced the, God, the movement of God in your life? Well, it should be made manifest in you. It shouldn't just be something you talk about. There should be a distinguishable otherness in the way you carry yourself. He says all selfishness and division and all of this, all of these, this strife among people should go away. Verse 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think often in our lives, we've talked about this before, we're either working really hard to look like everyone else, right? Joining the culture. Or we're working really hard to look uber-religious, which is fighting the culture sometimes. But there is a narrow way in the center that is just resting and making manifest the spirit of Christ. Right? Jesus in John 15 will say, abide in me and fruit will be produced in you. Right? He says, abide in me because apart from me, you, you can't do anything. I think a lot of times we're trying to duct tape fruit on our branches. We're trying to force that stuff there. And the key for us in manifesting this excellent spirit is just abiding in Christ. It says in Galatians chapter 5 verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I see these, uh, I see these not of the world stickers, you know, or t-shirts, N-O-T-W, you've probably seen them around. It's kind of a popular brand, not of this world. And I understand what they're trying to do. But the thing that makes us not of this world is, is not our political stances. It's not the ways in which we, uh, it's not the ways in which we fight the culture or the ways in which we join the culture. The thing that makes us not of the world is that we manifest the spirit of Christ. 
Do you know how weird? Just think about it again. Don't, for just a second, set aside all of whatever your religious training looks like, right? You've grown up in the church or you've been here for an hour. Whatever your religious training looks like, set it aside and just think about how weird this list sounds in our world today. Love. Joy. Think about a person who manifests love and joy. Peace. Patience. What? Patience. Kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We talk a lot about being counterculture. You know, it's funny how like punk rockers at some point became mainstream, right? Punk rock used to be this rebellious thing, the mohawks and the button jackets and all that stuff. But there's a point at which it becomes sold in the mall. You can go buy punk rock stuff in the mall and then it's not very punk rock anymore, right? I think there are sometimes things that we associate with religious practice that have more to do with greed and pride and hatred and division and jealousy and envy and they have no bearing and, and no reflection at all on the, the excellent spirit of Christ. You want to be punk rock as a Christian? You want to be countercultural as a Christian? You want to be different? You want to stand out in a crowd? You don't have to be standing out in a crowd because you're shaking your fist the hardest. We stand out in a crowd by being loving and gentle and peaceable and kind and generous and good and gracious, humble, right? You do those things in our world today and you will look weird. Right? You will look like a weirdo. You lived a gentle, kind, peaceable, sacrificial life, and you will stand out. It's an excellent spirit. It's the spirit of Christ. When Jesus describes his own heart, the way he describes his own heart, right, is gentle and lowly. He says, Take my yoke upon you, right? For my burden is light. I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. That's the way Jesus self identifies the inner workings of his own life. So Daniel and his friends, Daniel had an excellent spirit. He was distinguishable, like my, like my Mimi, right? He was distinguishable. Something was different about him. Can people tell the difference in who you are because you're revealing Christ in your character, in your attitudes? Love and sacrifice, love and sacrifice have been countercultural in every age, right? You're taking notes. Think about that, right? Take that one home and chew on it. Love and sacrifice have been countercultural among humans in every age. That has never been the norm. It has never been the standard by which humans live, love and sacrifice, peace and gentleness and kindness. It has been countercultural in every society forever. We can, we can have a distinguishable otherness if we manifest this excellent spirit. The second thing I want you to see, not only is there an excellent spirit in Daniel, but there's impeccable standing. Excellent spirit and impeccable standing. I love the fact, look at what it says, back to Daniel chapter 6. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Here's what they do. They go, we got to take this guy Daniel out. This guy from Judah, he's getting our jobs. He's taking our paychecks. He's taking the position of influence that we want. And so we got we to get him out. So they do, in essence, what's essentially just a background check. It's like today you'd hire a private investigator and you go, hey, I need you to go snap some photos or dig up some dirt on this opponent. I want to take this guy out, right? I'm going to run some uh, accusatory commercials on you know, Persian TV or whatever. They try and dig up some dirt on Daniel. I love the fact that they go and try and dig up some dirt on Daniel. And guess what? They can't find any. There's no dirt to be had. So much so that his opponents look at each other, scratching their heads. And they go, well, 
if we're going to undermine him, right? If we're going to pull the rug out from underneath his political power, we're going to have to do it with his worship. We're going to have to do it with his followership of God because that's the only thing that we can identify as a distinguishable difference, right? My question in this as I look at my own life is, um, what if my faith was the only thing people could condemn or dismiss me for? What if my faith was the only thing people could condemn or dismiss me for? I will tell you matter-of-factly that many times before our friends and neighbors and co-workers, before the people in the world around us, the people in our circle ever have an opportunity to evaluate the truth of Christ or the truth of the scripture or the truth of the gospel, many times before our friends and neighbors ever have an opportunity to logically process the truth of what we're declaring in our evangelism, they have already undermined the value of it based on our faulty character. Does that make sense? Long before they ever have a chance to go, do I think Jesus rose from the dead? Do I believe that I'm a sinner saved by grace, that I can only be saved by grace? Long before they ever evaluate those things, they go, I actually don't want to listen to Darren because he's greedy or because he's prideful or because he cheated or because he stole or because I've seen the way he interacts with his children or his wife or whatever. There are all kinds of things that ruin our testimony before people ever have a chance to consider our testimony. Does that make sense? Not so with Daniel. Not only does he have an excellent spirit in him, a distinguishable otherness, but he has this impeccable standing. He's lived a life from which you can't really pull the rug. First Peter chapter two, verse 12, probably familiar for some of you says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Back to Philippians chapter 2 verse 15 it says this. Or 14 and 15 says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do all things without grumbling and complaining so that you are a beacon. So that you are a shining light in the midst of a darkened world. Love that. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. I think too often Christians in our world today are disregarded, not because of the authority of scripture, not because of the merits of our theology, not because of the reality of who Christ is or what Christ did, but I think too often we are disregarded because of our own character, because of the way we have carried ourselves, the way we've conducted ourselves in the world. Not so with Daniel. He's a man of excellent spirit. He's a man of impeccable standing. We give people all kinds of reasons to disregard our faith and testimony. I was struck this week too, we've been talking about circles and the fact that each and every one of us have a circle. We have people around us. It might be five, it might be 15 for you. It depends, it's different with different people. But we all have people upon whom we have some influence. People who are looking at us, people who are watching us, people that we get to pour into their lives. And some of them are believers and some of them may not be believers. We have the opportunity to reveal Christ to our circle. And each of us have a circle, right? But it occurred to me as I was looking at this week, some of the people in my circle might not actually like me. They might not all be friends. 
I could have people in my circle with whom I have influence who actually wish they had my job or who wish they lived in my house or who, they, or who are frustrated with me because I mow my yard during a time they're trying to take a nap or whatever, right? There are all kinds of reasons why people might sort of draw into a circle of influence that I have and I have to be really careful that I don't give them ammunition to disregard my witness about Christ, my revelation about Christ. That requires impeccable standing. It requires determination. It requires living this life of holiness to renounce ungodliness like Paul says to Titus. So we see an excellent spirit. We see impeccable standing. Thirdly, I want you to look at his, back to Daniel chapter six, I want you to look at his unwavering system. His unwavering system. Uh, the satraps and the prefects, they go, hey, we're not going to be able to, we're not going to be able to take this guy out uh, with any wrongdoing. There is no wrongdoing to be found. So instead, uh, we're going to have to plot something that has to do with his worship. And so they go to Darius and they say, hey, why don't you set up a law where nobody's allowed to pray to any other God or man except you for 30 days? And Darius goes, that sounds pretty good. I'm the king of the Medes and the Persians. I don't want other people making petitions of other God. You know, he's got a high self-esteem, obviously, a high regard for himself. And he signs this thing into law. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once the king has signed an edict like that, he himself does not have the ability to revoke it. He himself does not have the ability to undo a law he's put into place. So they put this into place and it says, um, if you jump down to 10, well, in verse 9, therefore King Darius signed the document and injunction. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. There's an unwavering system. I, I remember this story from when I was a kid. I remember this story from when I was a kid. But the way in which I remember it, the way in which I, I sort of always thought of it, was that these bad guys go to Darius, they trick him into signing this law, and then they tell Daniel, hey, you know what? You can't pray to anybody but Darius for 30 days. And at that point, then Darius is like, oh yeah? Well, I'll show you. You can't tell me who to pray to. You can't tell me what to do because I'm Daniel. And then so he marches upstairs in his house and he flings open the windows and he stands in the doorway and he says, for any of you who don't like this, here it is anyway. Dear God, I'm still praying even though these jerks don't want me to, right? That's the way it always looked. It always looked like civil disobedience to me. Like he's just trying to, I mean, it looked like punk rock. Looks like he's trying to protest here. Can I tell you that's not what's revealed in the scripture? It isn't that Daniel starts to pray when they tell him he can't. It's that they're able to trap him because that's already Daniel's practice. It says Daniel prays three times a day with the windows open toward Jerusalem as was his practice. When his enemies are thinking, how do we get this guy? They were able to formulate a plan based on his consistency based on his unwavering system. They were able to watch him and go, well, the dude prays three times a day for goodness sakes. I love the fact that he's praying towards Jerusalem. Even though he's in this foreign context, he remembers where he's come from. He longs for home, right? He's in this foreign place and he's longing for home. They go, oh, this is, this is how we'll get him. He does this every day. And when Daniel goes back upstairs to pray, he does so not, not in opposition, but just in consistency. Now, there might be some who would look at this text and go, oh, this is exactly what's happening in our world today. 
right? The CDC and the government and all these other people are telling us we can't get it together in a room like this with more than a hundred people, or we can't get it together in a room like this. At one point they were telling us we couldn't sing or whatever. And everybody was up in arms and it was like, now's the time to fight. And in fact, there are all kinds of people who were rallying to fight against the suppression. Can I tell you, that's not the same thing. This isn't apples for apples here, right? They weren't telling Daniel, Hey, you can't pray in your window right? So that he had to go to a different place to do it. They weren't saying, Hey, you can't pray only three times a day so that he had to reduce his prayer to twice. They were saying you can't pray to any God other than Darius. And so there's a theological distinction there, right? There's discernment. He goes, what you're asking me to do is not to pray to God, which I cannot do. And so he takes a stand, but that's not apples for apples for this. Our our leadership and the doctors and the government or whatever have said, Hey, we don't think it's safe for a community to have a bunch of people clustered together where they can pick up disease, right? Where they can pick up this virus. And so they've asked us, they haven't said we can't worship. They haven't said we can't glorify God. They haven't said we can't praise him. And in fact, we don't believe that worship is relegated to this room or this time slot on Sunday in any case. It'd be an entirely different thing if the government came to us and said, you may not worship Jesus Christ anymore. Guess what? I'm off to prison that day, right? If they come to us and they say, you may no longer serve God, or you may no longer study the Bible. Guess what? Write me letters in prison. Send me one of those cakes with a file in it. I'll be out of here. I'll be out of here, right? But right now, all they've said is it isn't safe for you or your community to be in a room with more than a hundred people. That has nothing to do with whether or not we can worship God, whether or not we can praise him, whether or not he is still the king. And so there's no need for us to, to fight against that. But I'll say there's another aspect of this I want you to think about. I think that for many people in this season, when the government and the CDC and the World Health Organization and whoever else said, hey, you know, we can't do the same large gatherings we've done because it's not safe. I think there are many people now that have moved into a new season of their life where they're very comfortable just sort of watching church on TV and their own clock at their own time. They actually don't miss the gathering of God's people together. They don't miss the assembling of ourselves together. They don't miss that community thing. They're actually kind of happy to have church on their time frame in their place when they want it and, and not when they don't. Does that make sense? I think we as Christians have to be very careful in the coming days that we don't get to a place where we go, you know what? They told us we couldn't do a gathering. And during that time, I've decided I don't really want to do a gathering. I'm not really interested in that anymore. I think even when they let us come back together, I'm just going to watch a bunch of different podcasts online. I would warn you, all of us, to be on guard that we don't lose things that are absolutely vital and that are predicted in scripture and called for in scripture, expected by God, the gathering of us together, even if it's in small groups, even if it's in families, even if it's just around our own kitchen tables, isn't the thing we can neglect. We have to gather together. So if, as we move into the next season, whatever that looks like, it's important for us not to just sort of discard assembling to worship God corporately. We have to continue to do that. And, and I think uh, the, the question here is, or the thing to be reminded about is that you can tell what's important to someone by what they can't bear to lose. You can tell what's important to someone by what they can't bear to lose. So for instance, if they outlawed exercise bikes today, I, I, really that wouldn't affect my life at all, right? <laughs> that wouldn't affect my life. If they came out with a law that said, hey, no more exercise bikes, I'd be like, oh, yeah, a, I agree with that. You know, like I'm going to vote for it, Right. If they said, if they outlawed, but you remember a couple of years ago when Hostess went bankrupt and they stopped making Twinkies? That was a day of crisis for me, right? That was a day of crisis. I'm glad Nike or whatever bought Hostess and they're making Twinkies again. Um, 
You can tell what's important. There has to be evidence of an ongoing relationship with God in our lives that other people can see. That's what we're talking about when we talk about an unwavering system. First Corinthians chapter nine, verse 24 says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's he arguing for here? He's arguing for an unwavering system that you put spiritual disciplines in place, that you have a practice, even a predictable practice that other people could see from the outside. That's actually a great thing to do to reveal Christ in our, in our individual contexts. Daniel is a man of an excellent spirit. He's a man of impeccable standing. He's a man of unwavering system. And he's a man of affectionate solidarity. So we'll finish here in Daniel chapter 6. Look at what happens in verse 14. In verse 14, after Daniel has violated the law, the satraps have snatched him up. In Daniel chapter 14, uh, they have said to, to the king, hey, Daniel broke the law. So verse 14, the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Wait a second. This is the king of the Medes and the Persians who is much distressed, greatly bothered, setting aside everything on his schedule to try and rescue a, a Judean slave, right? Now, granted, the Judean slave has been very helpful and has been there for a long time, but I want you to see the affection in the heart of Darius for this man, that the king would set aside whatever he's doing to try and save him? It says he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to him, King, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. They're saying, you are powerless. You can stop worrying about it. You can stop fretting. You can start, stop stomping around and get back to work. You can't save Daniel. You don't have the power to do that. Verse 16, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, I love this, verse 16, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. It means... The lions weren't the only ones who didn't get to eat that night. The lions weren't the only ones who didn't get to eat. You know who else didn't eat that night that he was in the den? Darius, a foreign king. A person who has no regard for God, doesn't even know who God is, only sees God in terms of being Daniel's God, who Daniel serves continually. He was grieved. He was active. He was working. What, what does this put on display for us? What it puts on display for us is that Darius loved Daniel. Darius cared about him. This foreign king cared. Well, how does that happen? Well, it happens in, in, in solidarity. It happens in mutual affection. I love that the, the scriptures, Jesus himself talks about loving our enemies. Luke chapter six, verse 27 says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. 
In Acts chapter 2, it tells us that the, the early church, in Acts 2.47, it tells us that the early church was praising God and having favor with all the people. That the early church in Acts chapter 2 had endeared itself to the community. That they were loved by all the people. That has to do with, that has to do with an ongoing investment and affectionate solidarity. We, we've been talking about this prophetic engagement that's rooted in demonstrable faith. Next week, we're going to begin talking about what it looks to be unblushingly odd. What it looks like to be different. And part of the difference is that countercultural goodness and peace and love and kindness and generosity. It's so foreign and so weird. But what happens when we make that excellent spirit manifest in the lives of other people? It's so peculiar that it draws people to us. And then by extension, it draws people to Christ. Darius labors all night. Darius cares about Daniel. It's not just about being different. It's loving others and being loved by them. When we talk about being a citizen of distinction, a citizen of distinction is one who endears himself to those who don't even share his views. Endears himself to those who have not the same priorities. Who endears himself by being a person of an excellent spirit, an impeccable standing, an unwavering system. As a result of that, there is an affectionate solidarity. Daniel is spared from the mouths of the lions. And when, uh, when they pull him out of the lion's den, if you get all the way down there, he says, uh, if you look at verse 19, at break of day, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. He came near to the den where Daniel was and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? The last thing I want you to see today, and it's not, it's not specifically a point, but it's just something to consider. He says, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you? Darius didn't recognize God as his own. You see that? He doesn't say, does our God, does our God, who we serve continually... He says, does your God, who you serve continually, have the power to deliver you? Darius doesn't recognize God as his own, but he does recognize God's power to do what Darius can't. Think about that for a second. Darius does not recognize God as his own, but he does recognize Daniel's God as having the power to do what Darius himself cannot do. What, what, what difference does that make? Well, the point here is that Darius probably wasn't showing up for Daniel's prayer sessions, right? Darius probably wasn't showing up for whatever sort of religious service that Daniel conducted. If they created some kind of a synagogue here, Darius wasn't showing up. He still sees God as Daniel's God. But at the same time, because of his proximity, because Daniel is a citizen of distinction, because he's a man of impeccable character and excellent spirit and all these things, Darius has the ability to see that Daniel's God has influence where even Darius himself doesn't. There's something beautiful that happens in our world when people who wouldn't pick up a Bible, people who might not ever step foot into a church like this or join us on the roof of the parking garage for a worship service, when they begin to understand something about the God of the universe, not because they've even believed in the God of the universe yet, but because they believe in us. Because they have seen us, they have seen our witness and our testimony. There are true things that are revealed about God and his power and his character and his deliverance and his redemption. That when people see us, we paint a picture of Christ. That even people who don't yet believe in Christ can begin to comprehend. What, what I'm saying here is that in some ways, Daniel is the scripture, the only scripture that Darius probably has ever read. 
Darius is the script. He can, he can look at Daniel's life and understand something about God. There's a great challenge for us as citizens of distinction to know what to say yes to and what to say no to. To be people of impeccable standing, excellent spirit, unwavering system, affectionate solidarity, and to reveal Christ to the people in our circles who, who might not at this stage in their life pick up a Bible, but are watching us and they will learn something about God and his power through our witness. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us an excitement and a passion. We, we've looked at these six chapters and seen these young men who had such a faithful stand, who were so committed, who were so worshipful and faithful and had such a profound influence on this culture, who had such a significant influence, not by jumping up on the table and shouting, but by transforming the culture through predictable faithfulness. Daniel in Daniel 6 is predictable again. He does exactly what we would have expected him to do. He serves you, and as a result, this foreign king comes to understand something of who you are, even though he doesn't yet see you as his God. Pray, God, that you would use us in that very same way in the world in which we find ourselves. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.